I'm Philippe Rose. This is a conversation among friends working in international affairs. We share stories about our life in the real world and beyond the noisy headlines. And we hope a few interesting insights come out. So um, today I'm uh, speaking with Alexis Grabar. Um, Alexis is an accomplished social entrepreneur who had an early career uh, in aviation sales uh, in really tough um, frontier markets of Eastern uh, Europe and, and Russia. But after a successful run, he decided to um, stop and go back to school uh, and do both an MBA um, as well as a mid-career degree from the Fletcher School in International Affairs and use that time to help him crystallize entrepreneurial ideas uh, and then launch, launch a business um, which became a precursor to Uber for point-to-point -point travel for high net worth individuals. And this became a starting point for his life um, as a serial entrepreneur. But beyond um, business achievement, what really struck me about Alexei is this relentless sense of purpose um, that probably um, was instilled at a young age um, from a family of um, illustrious personalities in the arts and science, but also his ability to um, pivot and realign himself when he felt that he was venturing further away from what his true self was in a sense. And I admire also his intuition to make sense of a really complex macro environment and anticipate things that most of us don't. So I'm really excited to be speaking to Alexi um, today, especially as also this is um, our first podcast recorded face-to-face -face in London on a very special day, um, as London is um, full of crowds um, waiting to pay their respects to uh, the late um, Queen Elizabeth II, um, which Alexi intends uh, to do as well straight after we finish this recording. So I'm, I'm really, really happy that we are able to pull it off uh, today, Alexi. Thank you for making the, the, the time um, and, and really great to be to have you on this podcast today. Thank you, Philippe, to have me. Uh, very pleased to be with you today. Yeah. And um, it, it is um, uh, slightly daunting uh, for me to be doing this, uh, the first the first episode recorded in person. And also I'm facing Alexi in, in, in full um, uh, black black tie uh, to be in the in this um, mournful spirit um, uh, of paying the respect to um, to the late queen. Um, I think what I would like to do as we start this episode is ask you to share a little bit what it was like growing up. What was the fi family environment? What were you talking about at the dinner table? What did it feel like? in your family? Yeah, so my family has played a very important role on, on me, on what I am and what I do. Uh, I come from an interesting family uh, with origin in Russia. So three of my grandparents were born in the Russian Empire, pre uh, the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, they were my grandfather, Andrei Grabar, was born in Kiev with his uh, brother, Pierre. Uh, they immigrated to France and they both became uh, 
academicians, as we say in French, uh, one in Byzantine art, the other one in medicine and the Institut Pasteur. So I had on the father's side two very successful academia, scientific, um, you know, um, people around me, and they had a very important role in what I tried to do on the planet. Then uh, I had my uncle, the son of André Grabar, Oleg Grabar, who uh, decided to move to uh, to Harvard and um, and to study for 40 years Islamic arts and become uh, the professor of Islamic art at Harvard for the Aga Khan. So this side of the family clearly is putting uh, some uh, very high standards um, on academia. Uh, the other side of the family on the father's side is very interesting too, because my grandmother was Bulgarian mm. with um, a father who was the minister of defense of Bulgaria and who was the general Ivanov, who actually, uh, before the First World War, was on the French-Russian side against the Germans. So, uh, you know, this side of the family, the Grabar family, um, clearly has an impact on me. And uh, and the other side, which is my mother's side, is uh, Franco-American. Actually, my uh, on my mother's side, um, the family immigrated from St. Petersburg to Prague, from Prague to the United States, and uh, they basically became both French and American, with my grandmother being a nurse at the... Uh, uh, at the um, uh, Hôpital Américain in Neuilly, and then uh, in New York, in Seacliff, and in uh, Long Island. So um, both sides of the family had clearly an impact on what I am. <laughs> And and the atmosphere at home was this full of I can imagine with like very intellectual discussions or philosophical topics or and also what I'm wondering it's it's a it's a family of, of rich um, cultural mixes it, was it was it rooted in 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 it, did you feel you had roots in in France or was it a, a composite or what, what did you feel at home there Yeah, I was born and raised in France, so I always said that I'm, I'm a Frenchman with uh, an American passport and uh, Russian origins. That's the way I try to summarize who I am. But, you know, now for 22 years, I live in London, so most probably <laughs> I'm a Londoner. <laughs> yeah. But back then, French, you know, education, uh, Paris, Meudon, where I was born, uh, my uh, grandes écoles were clearly, till the age of 22, who I was. I was mostly a Frenchman, a very French, uh, trying to... Uh, with a very interesting family, very international family, a third generation of immigrants, as we call yeah. them, white uh, Russian immigrants, which were very uh, colorful, very interesting, yeah. and full of uh, beautiful, interesting stories. Mm, yeah, yeah, fantastic. And so th this m model of, of success or achievement or, or um, people who People who'd accomplished things that were that were exceptional—that seems to have shaped you in terms of making you want to do something exceptional yourself. Is that is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, it's fair to say. I mean, uh, as we say in my family, la, la barre était haute in right. French. Uh, <laughs> so clearly, the the, the standards were high. Yeah, yeah. We had two academicians, the first generation of immigrants from Russia. Normally, they used to, uh, you know, the first immigration. Uh, at that time, the white immigration in Paris, one million immigrants from the Russian Revolution were driving cabs or working yeah. at Renault factories. 
they were not exactly, uh, you know, top professors at, uh, at the Collège de France and, and the Institut Pasteur and the Academicien. Actually, my, uh, both my grandfather and his brother were not very involved with the Russian community in Paris at the time. They, they had the feeling they, re you know, successfully managed their career, but without the, the Russian component, I would yeah, say. Yeah. But clearly, I think they put the standards and my uncle also put the standards and, and his son, uh, Nick Grabar, an American lawyer who went to Harvard Law School, became the partner of Claire Gottlieb, the managing partner for Brazil, yeah. uh, and just retired uh, this year from uh, Claire Gottlieb, 30 years as a lawyer, um, also put the standards of who I am and what I want to do on this yeah. planet. Yeah. And so you, you made a decision relatively early on that business was the track that you wanted to, uh, to follow. Uh, how did that how did that happen and uh, wh why did you pick that yeah well it's interesting uh, it went I went through at 15 16 basically I wanted to be a pilot and a cosmonaut so oh, wow. I was yeah. uh, actually interested at that time already by uh, you know aerospace and uh, and uh, very interested by what has, was happening actually my grandmother on my mother's side was a translator of the Apollo Soyuz program oh, wow. between the Russian yeah. and Americans yeah. so she was each time she was coming to France was giving me the Apollo Soyuz uh, little uh, <laughs> thing so i think uh, yeah i was interested by um, by two things really i was interested by one thing was very technical aeronautical and uh, And I could have gone through an engineering um, school. And the other side was uh, quite interested by uh, business and uh, international affairs. And because of the French system, I decided to go to the Grandes École of Préparation HEC instead of uh, Polytechnique or, you know, Superhero, which could have been also route uh, at, the, at, this time, mm. at this time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so... Um, talk, talk us through your, your early corporate career, uh, which, which I find really, really uh, fascinating in, in um, having decided to choose like almost one of the, 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 the toughest area that, that could be uh, mm. in, in picking a career in, in aerospace sales and, mm. and then deciding to do that, which itself is, is, is uh, one of the most challenging types of sales mm, there yeah, are yeah. in terms of complexity, but then deciding to do that Uh, in the in the frontier uh, frontier markets of Eastern Europe and and, and, and Russia, I, I think it's like it's 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 deciding to try to climb the, the steepest hills you, you could find yeah. some, somehow. It's a well, I got lucky. I think I was at the right time at the right place. I was for three years in a, in a business school in in the French Alps called Grenoble. At the time, I wanted to be a mountaineer. Yeah. Also, yeah. I like the mountains and. Uh, You know, climbing and, uh, you know, trying to reach summits was always in my uh, uh, thinking and my cycle. So, um, yeah, I got lucky because Aerospatial was looking for a young 21, 22 years old um, person to be positioned in Moscow as a VSNE, which was an alternative military service in uh, companies. Oh, yeah. And you could do that either in companies in France or in embassies. So I was very lucky to be positioned in uh, 91 in Moscow to work for Aerospatial. And at the time, it was not about sales. It was more about trying to cooperate with the Russian aerospace industry and trying to put the Russian aerospace industry into the French one, the European one, and maybe the global one. Yeah, and yeah. and um, it was a fantastic four years where I started to work on, you know, Uh, a joint venture with Eurocopter called the Mi 38 project. It was the 
a new generation of helicopter, heavy helicopters that we wanted to build with the Russians. And I was, uh, you know, uh, you know, part of this joint venture for three years based in Moscow. Yeah. And, and that gave me the opportunity to, to set up the, the Eurocopter office in Russia, open Airbus helicopters. And then very rapidly, we couldn't cooperate with the Russians for different reasons. We tried, but, you know, so we transformed everything we did into cells because yeah. we thought that we were not able to build anything yeah. in joint ventures. And uh, then um, the whole idea of uh, selling helicopters, small helicopters to the Russian market makes make sense because uh, the, the, the Russians had a lot of heavy helicopters, but they didn't have any light yeah. ones. Yeah. So uh, the, the range of uh, Eurocopter and Airbus helicopters was perfect for the yeah. Russian market. Yeah. And what I did in this time, 92, 97 in Moscow, uh, became a, a very big subsidiary in 20 years with uh, more than 360 helicopters sold to the Russian market and the CIS market, uh, including Kazakhstan, Ukraine and, and the region. And, and you might want to say a word about the context because 92, 97 was the time like it's, it's like the, yeah. the fastest transformation of the country I'd ever seen. It's like free for all in, in, uh, well, it was fascinating to be in Moscow in Russia at that time. Um, with my Russian origin, I was speaking Russian fluently. I felt very at ease to be there, but at the same time, I knew I was not Russian. I was clearly French and uh, I was a foreigner, but trying to do something with the Russian market, which was uh, in turmoil. And uh, I saw it all, basically, because I saw uh, 92, 97. I saw, uh, you know, the crisis, 98, 99. Uh, and then... Um, I had to manage at the end uh, a big company, Eurocopter, trying to cooperate in that market for five years. And, and then I moved to Airbus commercial aircraft based in Toulouse to basically uh, look at the region of Eastern Europe, Russia and Middle East, trying to sell those aircraft, uh, but not anymore in, in a cooperation mode, but clearly in a, in a selling mode, as you say, in competition with Boeing. Can you share a bit if, if there's any anecdotes that come to mind of, of, because to me, in my mind, this kind of sale is, is the political dimension is really, really strong. And it's like states trying to push their industry and then yeah. tit for tat with other governments. So can you give us a sense about this complex juggling game that you were playing and especially do, doing that with, I mean, a place like Russia, which was in co complete upheaval? So, yeah, maybe two examples. The first one was my first deal. I was uh, 24 years old. Uh, basically, we had a ministry uh, who came to knock at my door in Moscow and said, we want to buy five helicopters from you. They are the five BO-105, Messerschmitt, Bolko, Blom from Eurocopter, and we want to put them in our Illusion 76. And this minister is actually a, a sinister minister because it's the, now the minister at the time was uh, Minister Shoigu, who is now the Minister <laughs> of Defense uh, of Russia during this war in Ukraine. So... Uh, well, 20 years ago, I was uh, in contact with this ministry, the Ministry of uh, uh, Security Civil, as we call it, or in Russian, the MCS, to basically sell few helicopters. And that was my first deal uh, <laughs> in my life, which was um, an incredible deal. And Shoigu, for those who don't uh, picture him, it doesn't look like a really easy uh, gentleman to deal with. Yeah, but at the time, he was a very interesting minister. He was a minister coming from uh, Siberia who was trying to bring uh, human life to uh, communism and to uh, the value of uh, one human is is um, very important. And he was trying to change uh, the perception of Russia about, um, you know, helping people during, um, 
you know, uh, difficult situations like, um, so no, he, at the time, 20 years ago, I think he was a fantastic man. Uh, well, I really liked him uh, as a young person. What he became after is another yeah, question. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Um, so that would be one, you know, like uh, story. The other one would be most probably my, my sales campaigns in, in Prague or in Bucharest, where I was representing Airbus, uh, trying to sell, um, you know, Airbus aircraft to Czech Airlines and yeah. to Tarom. And I was, uh, you know, briefed by the French ambassador, the British ambassador, the German ambassador, how to do business in those regions. And, and I turned around those regions uh, mm. quite nicely. Mm. Uh, on one side, we were trying to sell a commercial aircraft. And on the other side, um, you know, Boeing was trying to sell um, defense uh, NATO subjects. So clearly, we were playing with politics at the time. And um, I've done that 10 years of my life. Yeah, yeah. And and the dimension was about uh, promoting uh, European industry and, and increasing sales. Was, was there also a military angle? Like, No, I, I was clearly, uh, that's an interesting point, because at the age of 22, I was very clear that I didn't want to join Aerospatial or Airbus on the military side. Yeah. I, I took, a, again, a, you mentioned, you know, my principle in life and I had few and I still have them. I didn't want to work for the military complex. I didn't want to sell weapons. Uh, that was not what I wanted to do of my life. And uh, so I said, well, I will go to Russia. I will go to Eastern Europe, but I will work only on the commercial civil aviation of Airbus, not the military side. The reality is I was dealing with lots of things which were confidential. Yeah, yeah. And I was dealing with the civil side, but the uh, military side had an effect and the diplomatic side too. And then, so, so you did that for about a decade. And, and it, 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 it sounded like it was um, an exceptionally fast career progression to be at such a, not even 30, handling like literally a couple hundred of sales of, of, of multi-million dollar pieces of equipment um, in, in, a, in a super challenging region. And, and then you decided that that trajectory was not the one you, you wanted to follow. Mm. Yeah, clearly, you know, at 27, I was a general representative of uh, Eurocopter in Moscow with a, with a bodyguard, a, a driver and a expat flat. So at 27, I was at the top of my game in Moscow, uh, maybe the top of the corporate game. And I can imagine the private life must have been crazy yeah, well, as well. So like, it was bizarre. Well, I couldn't date any Russian girls because we were worried that they could uh, uh, seek for secrets from me. I couldn't, well, I, I was uh, working a lot, but I had a fantastic life, a single life uh, in Moscow, and I couldn't really get married or do anything else and work like crazy. Airbus was another story. I was based in Toulouse. I was living in my suitcase for 250 days. I was going through the world. I had the feeling to be, um, you know, a, a chevalier or a, a knight yeah, going yeah. through uh, <laughs> regions and trying like to, to conquer them, yeah, or, yeah, and conquer right, them right. transform them. Yeah. So I had fantastic years, five years doing that. I think what triggered the change of moving back, you know, from Russia back to Toulouse and uh, what triggered the, 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 the decision to move from Airbus, uh, vice president position at Airbus at 31, clearly 10 years before everybody in the organization, was simply uh, I wanted a change. And uh, I knew uh, Moscow was not the place to be uh, in 97, and it was dangerous for me to stay there longer because I was becoming Russian, most probably. I was too much doing business with the oligarchs, governmental people, and, you know, I was worried about myself, you know, going too uh, into uh, the depths of what the, you know, the Russian society was at that time. 
but I, I loved it and uh, uh, and I went very high on this. Um, and then uh, with Airbus, it was clearly I wanted to change my life from living in Toulouse, living in a suitcase. Uh, and selling airplanes, even if I sold uh, two billion dollars of uh, helicopters and aircraft, to uh, mostly a more st stable life in a big city. Yeah. I think that yeah. changed, that triggered the decision to go somewhere else. Yeah. And you decided to um, to take a break essentially and study again. Yeah. Um, yeah. So one year at the HEC MBA in Paris in Juan Rosas, and one year at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. For the mid KIMA was a fantastic period. It was like like to to combine two together. This is unusual. Like yeah. a business degree and an international relations degree back to back. Yeah, it's like yeah. Well, I think I started the MBA and I looked at the exchange programs of HEC and there was one which was fascinating, which was in international affairs. Yeah. So then uh, you know I started to pivot in my head that you know. I could have been a diplomat, I could have done a lot of things, and Fletcher was a perfect uh, platform for me to to grow, basically, and to grow most probably a side of me, which was, uh, I had already few success in few regions, uh, Eastern Europe, Russia, Middle East, so it was very logical, and I think HEC and Fletcher really liked my profile, when I, and they said, well, you should do this. Yeah. Uh, what also happened at Fletcher is I met Professor Laurent Jacques, who was the the dean, uh, the the co-dean of the school, and who very uh, early on said that Alexis, you should do uh, a thesis with me and stay here because you will like it. And uh, I really enjoyed working with him for a year. And my thesis was on aircraft leasing, which was a, a combination of ten years of aerospace defense and. Uh, 10 years uh, and thinking about the future of capital services uh, in the field of uh, financing of aircraft. And L Laurent Jacques is this fascinating character that uh, many of us who've uh, done the Fletcher program uh, have had as a, as a, as a, a teacher, a huge ex ex experience. It was, it was interesting to, to, to hear that, that he picked you out. He noticed that there was something in you, mm -hmm. in your background that was uh, very multidisciplinary mm. and that he wanted to nurture uh, as well because you, you could have really seen yourself continuing many many avenues and to be fair these thesis brought me to speak with ILFC CIT G Capital and they, those those companies wanted me to uh, go and work for them in the US in Los Angeles in New York and uh, while well, September 11 happened yeah. so uh, I went back to Europe but to be fair most probably September 11th didn't happen. I would have worked and joined ILFC and I would have been their vice president for Europe. Again, back in business. Back in business, yeah. you know, selling, uh, you know, Airbus and Boeing aircraft to Air France, British Airways, Aeroflot. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for the American leasing uh, industry, uh, which is, by the way, 25 years after, totally Chinese, which is an interesting yeah. point, which... Uh, which, you know, my thesis about leasing was about how the American leasing uh, industry was strong and the European was weak. But now it's been uh, supplanted by, by uh, well, the basically Chinese, the Chinese took over yeah. uh, the whole leasing. I, I, I had no idea about yeah, that. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's a company called Avalon and this is now bigger than ILFC, yeah, GE yeah. Capital and... Uh, yeah, and, and uh, you share with me your, your thesis uh, before mm. before uh, before we, we we met, and I thought this is an area that I know very little about, and, and most people are completely oblivious to. Uh, but it struck me that I, I knew that the the actual like like airline 
industry it doesn't make much money in general mm. but this leasing piece is the <laughs> is the important piece so yeah. it's not uh, you know building aircraft where you make the money it's not uh, operating the aircraft you make yeah. the money it's yeah. basically leasing the leasing aircraft, them yeah know, yeah yeah so. we took dub double digit uh, yeah, rates plus, of returns so, so, and, yeah, yeah. so I, I got very fascinated by this industry i, I love leasing yeah. and by the way when i created my first company um Avia Mediatek in London in, in 21, 22, when I decided to live in Europe, uh, basically the first subject um, I started to work on was a helicopter leasing company. So I combined my first love of helicopters with what I discovered at Fletcher, which was financial services and leasing. And I tried to put the two models together and I worked for three years on this new business model with a with Eurocopter and Airbus uh, helicopters. I, I want to pause a, a bit on... on um the, the the process that you went through to pivot in a way from your previous career to your entrepreneurial career what struck me is you you took about two, a good two years to to kind of read it kind of pick pick the pieces from your experience go through a, a creative phase and, and then emerge out of that with the, with a, almost a new direction and, and I just wanted to to uh, have you thought about like it sounds that there was a part of it that was by design, a part of it which was a bit of luck, various events that happened. But it's it sounds like you you went through a kind of a, a cauldron of of uh, ideas and things to kind mm. of move to phase two of your of your life or something like that. Yeah, the way to summarize this is a bit, um, you know, maybe it's my artistic and creative mm. side. Is every five years basically I get bored with what I do. Because I go into it with all my energy, all my passion, and I go deep and high, and I try to have an impact on something. But then after a certain period of time, I'm starting to look at some new challenges, some new uh, interesting ideas. New So clearly, you know, the helicopter industry was five years of my life. I loved it. I digged into it as much as I could. I had an incredible region, which was, you know, huge Russia, CIS by the way, the biggest region for helicopter usage. Uh, the the Russian did develop Russia with helicopters and not uh, and and trains and they clearly. Then Airbus was you know commercial aircraft fascinated by this airline business, then mixing it at Fletcher with leasing. So I got on 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 that side. Then as you know, I, I created and you mentioned that in the introduction a, a startup called Avolus where we were for seven years and I was the the CEO founder of that. Uh, we created a door-to-door -door high net worth individual business model to create basically a, a precursor of Uber in family office VIP transportation. Yeah, yeah. And uh, again, you know for seven years I got fascinated by private aviation I bought an airline called Eurojet. We had five private jets, 18 pilots. I did that selling it to the richest man of Romania who gave me an airport, an airline, and to manage at the age of 41, 42. So, you know, each time, every five years, uh, I, I find something else and um, I go for it. Basically, yeah. that's most probably the way I function. And then when you feel it's not working, then... Then the, you know you go through this period of reinvention or something like what, yeah, but it's not necessarily not working. I'm living sometime when it's working very well. You know, <laughs> Airbus, yeah. you know, yeah. Europe, yeah. it was working. The helicopter business was huge. The airline business. My friends who have stayed at Airbus, uh, they are now in charge of AirAsia. They are in charge of regions, and so you know, the airline business uh, is still fantastic. Private aviation last year during COVID, it was the biggest year of private aviation. Yeah, so sometimes sure. <laughs> I leave those industries or those sectors making a mistake, most probably, 
uh, I've done what I could. I reached a certain understanding and I created something, but I would have stayed, you know, three, five, ten more years. Maybe it would have been quite uh, easier to stay there, but I'm not challenged enough or I decided to pivot to go and do something else. And the reason for that, I'm not totally sure. Uh, most probably a, a form of uh, curiosity and uh, and basically uh, the need of adrenaline. Yeah. That would be the, the only way I could explain that. That's uh, that's fascinating. Maybe share a bit your your this period of time when you were running your your the Avolus company with this crazy market of uh, family office and high net worth individuals. How it was like and. Uh, Uh, it, it sounds almost like a little bit James Bondy type, like having yeah. to deal with. Well, the, the idea at the beginning was not James Bondy at all. The idea was uh, with my fiance of the time crossing uh, Albert Bridge in London. I was trying to build up a venture capital fund called Avia Mediatek, which is still existing, 50 million there. And I couldn't do it. Uh, you know, I was not coming from the financial industry. So nobody gave me uh, 50 million euros to invest in startups. Uh, that was 20 years ago. So it's very different now. Um, and, you know, crossing this bridge, suddenly we had the idea that everybody in London is struggling with transport. So we came up with the idea that point to point, the limousine business, the, the black cab business needs to be merged in Europe and there should be a pan-European limousine company. We started from ground, ground services, ground business and limousine business. So in, in one year, I think I visited 50 limousine companies. I tried to put them together. It was a nightmare. Uh, never again. But, you know, interesting. We started with that. We created the company on this business model. But then we added helicopters and jets. And what is funny is after six months, basically, the company was doing 90% of its revenue with jets. And uh, the cars, the limousine was less than 2% of the business. And, and the helicopters was uh, less than 5%. So, you know, when you're an entrepreneur, you create something, but you, then you pivot with what the market accepts and wants. And uh, that's what happened with Evolus. And, and you were servicing also what I imagine was ultra-demanding segments yeah. in terms of uh, expectations about service, about flexibility. Like, how was that like? And, and Yeah, uh, so that was very interesting for me because, you know, I discovered a world I didn't know, the, the, the world of uh, oligarchs, the world of ultra-networth individual people, yeah. uh, the way The, the world of family offices, which, you know, for 10 years was what I did at Avolus. We had that, we grew the business from zero to 10 million pounds. We had 100 family offices as clients. We organized their trips between uh, Russia, uh, England, France, Switzerland, America, Los Angeles, Asia. So it was a way to look at the planet a very different way. You know, those people had five houses, uh, three planes, helicopters to manage, etc. But it was a problem to solve. It was trying how to make transportation for those people safe, uh, nice, uh, cheaper than what they were spending, even if they were very rich, faster, better. At the time, the, the ecological concern was not there. Clearly, uh, 10, 15 years ago, we were not speaking about green aviation or green finance. Or, But, you know, there was a problem to solve. And I solved it to a certain extent. I think I solved the the relationship business side and, you know, uh, I didn't solve the technology side of the business. So I reached the limit of what I could do. Yeah. And that's when I sold my business and I moved on. In, in terms of that particular um, segment of, of customers, a lot of them that, especially in Eastern Europe and Russia, had made their money off the collapse of the system. What kind of 
yeah, what, what kind of reflections did that did that mm. uh, did that trigger? Well, look, um, on this, I've got a strange view because uh, I come from a, with my background, um, you know, and both family background, you know, French American background, and also living in in England for more than 20 years now. The way I look at this is, um, you know, old money and new money. Yeah. Uh, new money is a big subject. Uh, old money also, we, you know, the queen, <laughs> clearly, the, you know, and, and some uh, royal families and some, uh, you know, the Tsar of Russia was most probably at a certain point the richest man of the planet. Most probably the queen now um, is one of the top of 50 richest person on the planet. You know, this subject of wealth, you know, was triggered by my interest in private aviation. So I dig into that very intensively and try to understand where the creation of money comes from. My view is um, I'm worried by the 1% of what's happening now with the 1%. I think uh, it is a very uh, dangerous situation we are in again, where some very few have a lot of money and a lot of people don't have anything. And uh, we have people in the middle, uh, middle class in France, in England, in America, in, in Western Europe, but maybe also in Asia, in Africa, is struggling. And I think that's, that's a worry. Uh, at the same time, uh, you know, the entrepreneurs, the people who uh, invested, you know, who did finance, who invested in property uh, or in, in, uh, in retail got very rich in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, yeah. And all this is a bit the, the book of Piketty, but, you know, the French writer and the French economist worries me a lot yeah. because I think it's not good. And I think it creates a lot of instability in the world right now. Yeah. And it's a very interesting perspective because you, 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 you come from a, a, an environment where you've created, a, through your businesses, uh, employment, generated a lot of uh, kind of... You've you've built things that that generated value, but it, through, through your through your career, you've also been exposed to people um, who, whose wealth maybe was not created in this no. way, uh, and so so it sounds like there's um, there's some aspects of it that disturb you and some less so. But then, how do you kind of categorize that? Or hmm. because it's almost also also as if you're saying that. The role of the entrepreneur in creating wealth um, is very valuable, but then it tends to be that our system means that often the successful entrepreneur can accrue most of the wealth creation to him or herself, mm. and and that that's I think where you start having a problem with that. Is is that kind of how you yeah? I think it? Uh, well, I, I read um, you you few scholars on this subject. One is uh, Paul Kennedy. Uh, you know, the rise and fall of the great powers. And I wrote also, um, and I love uh, Nell Ferguson, who has been, uh, you know, who wrote uh, The Ascent of Money, uh, the, the Life of the Rothschild Family, uh, the, the West and the Rest. So, you know, I really believe that the creation of wealth is in a way to explain how empires are created. Yeah, yeah. And it's also a way to understand, you know, what's happening in the world right now. So I tried to look at this from an historical point of view uh, with my French, American, um, English, <laughs> Russian background. And clearly, you know, post-communism, 70 years of communism on the planet, still going on in China, has created uh, a system which is, you know, uh, I mean, I think economists will write books about the privatization of Russia. You know, an economy which is privatizing, privatized in less than 
Then 10 years, 70% of its economy, the size of uh, twice the size of the United States, uh, that, that has a major impact. And um, with you know the crisis, what's happening now with uh, Russia, Russia, Ukraine, everybody forgets the m- amount of money created by uh, the privatization of Russia, the, the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, Russian money oligarchs in London, uh, Russian money everywhere in the world. That has created a huge amount of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and this new wealth is creating also a huge amount of problems. But it can come also tomorrow from China, India, Africa. And, you know, also this new wealth is coming from the tech world in the United States. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and from finance and from, uh, you know, property business. So I don't know what to think about all that. I think um, this is quite... You know, if you, le- if you read the Greek and philosophers, they say uh, there was a time they were a monarchia and then there is a time there is oligarchy and then there will be a time there will be anarchy. Yeah, so yeah. You, you, you believe that that is coming? In, in, well, I think, you know, it's great. This oligarch time we, live, we have lived through with the Russians and the new Eastern European countries and we're going to face with China big time and with Taiwan and Hong Kong and... And Africa, most probably, is creating a world which is very dangerous. Mm-hmm. And there are many oligarchs, many very ultra-networks, yeah. milliardaires or billionaires in the world, but the principles are not right. And so, as we're talking in, in, in London, um, a, a memory comes back, actually, it's about 10, 15 years ago or so, there was a, an event at the LSE um, where, where uh, the LSE had invited uh, Boris uh, Berezovsky mm-hmm. um, for, a, for a talk. And uh, so I attended that and he, he arrived in his uh, Maybach uh, car, uh, which was set up uh, with a single huge seat in the back. So only he could sit, sit uh, in the back. And it was fascinating to hear him uh, to, to kind of g- give a critique of, of, uh, of the Russian regime, but also from a position of uh, tremendous personal wealth. And, and it was fascinating to watch the, the, the students trying to argue uh, about that seeming contradiction. And, and especially because uh, his, his approach was very kind of uh, iconoclastic and, and very boisterous as well. And he, he was saying things that, sounded like a joke but were meant seriously I remember him saying like in Russia it's easy to, to make money the, the, the difficult bit is to know how to spend it um, and it was a, a hint about um, uh, new wealth n- not knowing what culture is what, what yeah. value is and, and it was d- deeply disturbing uh, from, from the perspective of the students trying to uh, kind of grasp that and understand well that. he was one of the interesting oligarchs you know out of them he was a doctor uh, by pro you know he was a very uh, sophisticated man but he was a very shrewd businessman, Berezovsky, and he ended up, as you know, not very well uh, because of the old battle with Putin. The other one who is fascinating is, is Khodorovsky, yeah. who was the richest man of uh, of Russia. But all those oligarchs, there would be many books about them. I think um, two hundred of them. Uh, what will be what will history um, remember of them? Yeah. I, I'm not totally sure. And uh, you know the impact of those people on the planet, whether it's a good impact or a bad impact, is the question. Yeah. And most of them didn't have a good impact. They they, they spent a lot of money doing stupid things, buying uh, jets or airplanes or boats, which was my business, but I met them through that. And um, 
I even met uh, Roman Abramovich at uh, the okay. Stockholm, <laughs> who, when I was at Airbus, my last year at Airbus, I was at Le Bourget Air Show, and he wanted to buy uh, three private jets, and Airbus didn't believe that this guy will buy three, uh, you know, Airbus corporate jets, and basically bought three BBGs. So, you know, he bought them from Boeing, uh, but that was my last report at Airbus, was about Roman Abramovich. Right, so, right. you see, uh, I saw the, all that. I don't know what, I think, you know, the end of Avolus was, I, I, I was a bit, you know, 10 years of that, I was a bit disgusted by the whole thing. You know, it was not my principles. I'm coming from a Christian family where we work hard we to, to make money or to, to do academia and to write books. And I, I don't believe in easy money. I don't believe with yeah. stolen money. I don't believe in all those things yeah. which are wrong. And... Um, I think I wanted to turn the page, even if I love, you know, the luxury industry, I love uh, aviation, I love a lot of things, but there is a certain time where it's becoming a bit disgusting and then you want to turn the page. And did, did that, because after Avolus, you, you then, uh, this was kind of the beginning of your serial entrepreneurship mm. uh, track. And is is that like having a... An, an, an impact that was coherent with your your principle was that was that something that drove you more from that point forward or, or? yeah I think after Avolus I was looking for something which was which had a meaning uh, which was you know also as usual in in line with what I've done before and with my strengths so I thought about two things which you know triggered in me very strongly one was you know, every time I built up a business or I did something, I was in charge of clients. So the, the client's relationship, the client's experience, you can call that the sales, but it's more than that, um, it was interesting. So the other one was, uh, and we call that customer experience, CX. Um, the other part was as an entrepreneur, each time I built a business is building up a team. So the employee engagement, building up people, I, as you mentioned, I hired most probably through my startups, 200 people. So I created wealth through building up startups. And this EX subject with the combination of the CX, you know, to deliver a service, it's called in French, la symmetrie des attentions. So in order to improve the quality of a service, you need to work on the client side and the employee side yeah. in parallel. So I got very interested by that concept. This concept comes from uh, the hospitality industry, yeah. the Accor Group and the airline industry. And it's uh, the marketing des services, uh, service marketing, but it's very powerful. And I created a business called CXB Hub just on that concept, which now is uh, five years old, 10 people, and we are moving into digital tools trying to develop that. Can you say a bit more what that means? Like, Customer experience and then, and, and, yeah. yeah. Well, philosophically, uh, is basically we, we live now in a world of experience. What counts is not the product anymore. It's not uh, the service, is the experience you go through. So if you look at the young generation, they're all about that. The, the experience of watching a movie, the experience of being on the internet, the experience of uh, traveling through. Uh, so everything is experience, basically. So the subject of how to improve experiences is a huge subject, which come, you know, you can do it with products, you can do it with services, you can do it with technology, you can do it with the internet, you can do it, uh, you know, with space travel, etc., etc. And I think it's a very powerful concept. So I was, I'm very interested to dig into this because, um, I, you know, I, it's a concept and it's a business at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. 
And you're saying it's uh, it's connected. You connect that to the employee experience as well, which uh, it's very interesting to be doing this business today. Of course, as as this now front and center, even in this kind of relatively uh, soulless uh, building of yes. where we're doing so, this So, you know, two yeah. years of COVID, uh, you know, what happened to all of us the last two years, if you reflect on what were the impact of what's happening in the world right now, COVID is as big as, uh, you know, the, 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 the Spanish flu or, you know, the, the fam you know, the, 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 la peste. Uh, La Peste de Camus, if, uh, no, this is huge. And I think the impact of COVID on the brains of uh, people in corporation, in governments, child, uh, you know, children, uh, teenagers, students yeah, yeah. is huge. And, yeah. and I'm very pleased that I'm in this field trying to have an impact on how to counterbalance the negative effect of all that. And how did you come up with the idea? Like, how did you sense like, oh, wow, that, there's something there. I want, I want to. I want to go into that. Well, as usual, it's, you know, with me, it's all about meeting people, speaking. So one day in France, I met a company called Académie du Service, which was the leading uh, company think tank in customer experience in France. And that was a spin-off of Accor Group with 450 clients. And their business was a 7 million euro business trying to transform Cacaon companies, the top French companies, from products to service. But... You know, I met this company, I got fascinated by their business model, and I thought, well, I need to bring this French idea into the international world. So for one year, I worked on trying to bring this concept to America, England, Russia, China, etc. That didn't work. So we turned around the business. Instead of bringing this Academy du Service idea, we're going to try to create a new concept, which is called CXB Hub, yeah. from scratch. Yeah, fascinating. Fascinating. And talk, talk, talk to us a bit about dyslexia. Yeah, so uh, that's a big one for me because, uh, well, I, I disc just discovered that my daughter might be dyslexic. Oh, really? So yeah. that's How old is she? She's seven years old, so you don't know yet, but clearly dyslexia had an impact on me. First, you know, in my childhood, you mentioned from seven to 13, I went to, um, with my uh, grandmother uh, from America and, and, and Russia to see, um, you know, at an early stage, because we were jumping between three languages, French, English, and Russian, um, I went to see uh, somebody to help me read and, and, and write properly. Um, then uh, I discovered during my grande école uh, process in France that, you know, in order to be in the top 10% of all the exams, there was something very difficult for me uh, in mathematics or in physics, which, you know, was a sort of blockage. Yeah. But at the same time, was giving me shortcuts to find solutions that anybody could find. So it was a strange one. And, um, well, I, I understood it was dyslexia. So um, when I grad, you know, applied to HEC and I applied to Fletcher and to Harvard and to... I always mentioned that I'm a dyslexic and I don't have a problem with that. I think, um, you know, I discovered, you know, in my life of entrepreneurship that, you know, um, Richard Branson is dyslexic. Yeah. Many entrepreneurs are dyslexic. Because basically, they don't evaluate risk properly. Their brain is working uh, such a way that they mix both signals on the left side and the right side of the brain, and they can't find really the solution, but they don't analyze risk properly. So risk takers uh, very often uh, could be dyslexic because actually the, the decision they're making to do this you know, like building up a company, going on climbing uh, the Everest or a big mountain is not a logical decision. You should, shouldn't do this. 
but dyslexic people do it. So there's an element of intuition and an element of like the, the risk the risk circuits is disabled or something, yeah, something like that. Like, right? Something like that. And and you credit that with having kind of being a bit of the source of a creativity that you have or a Yeah, there, there is no doubt about it. I, I worked on my dyslexia uh, when I started to understand it had it was part of me. And uh, it created a, a very strong, uh, you know, creative side of, you know, my ventures, my ideas. I welcomed it. I, I nursed it. And, and it helped me go in areas where nobody goes. And I liked yeah. it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. And on the downside, maybe take risks that you, you regret? Or <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I've done a lot of crazy things, you know, going to Russia uh, in 92 for Airbus. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Was it a good idea or not a good idea? I'm not sure, but it started my career. I've done lots of things, building up companies, you know, um, you know, taking risks financially, yeah. personally, with my family that I shouldn't take, etc., right. etc. Et so, yes, I think I did things... Uh, Well, I, I I never did really well. I did climbing, which was very dangerous physically, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. But and and uh, w where are you now? Like, what what's driving you now? Like, mm -hmm. are you still in this serial entrepreneurship mode, or have you? What what's important to you? Yeah, I think well, at fifty two, and um, you know, after two years of COVID, uh, Brexit, the war in Ukraine, all those things happening at the moment. I'm really in a place where I will continue to create companies. This is what I do and that's, I know how to do and I do it well. I love nursing startups, but I'm looking for basically a form of balance and a form of meaning to give to uh, the next generation, you know, my daughter, but also I'm, you know, I'm teaching at, at Oxford at a business school, um, trying to give back to society what I learned in 30 years. And uh, I think that's where I am now. I, I'm, um, I will continue to, to have this energy to build things, but I will try to do it a more balanced way and a more giving way. Yeah. And what are some of the maybe messages that you're sharing with startups? Uh, maybe some of the things that you... You, you, you wish you'd apply yourself, maybe that, that you... you, you I, I'm especially thinking about... Because before launching myself in a corporate career, I had when I was a student, I, I had a, two two little startups that that I I started and, and didn't go very far. But um, but I remember those days were the full full focus around around making it work uh, day and night and and um, uh, like. What strikes me is like listening to your story that there's a there's a time at which aspects around value and purpose and impact and meaning started being more, more important. Is that something that you're trying to bring in your messages to 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 startups, or what are what are some of the Alexis words of wisdom that you give to 20 year olds who are yeah, well, struggling? The, now? the first yeah. thing to do uh, for a startup, my first advice is never do it on your own. Yeah. So it's the co-founder model. Yeah. It's a very well-known now principle established by Entrepreneur First and Antler and many venture capital funds. A founder of a startup or unicorn or whatever the size of the business is much stronger yeah. if he builds this business as a duo yeah. and not as a uh, on his own. So first thing, you know, co-founder model. And by the way, out of six companies, I co-founded three. Yeah. So 50% of them were co-founded. Yeah. 
The second advice I always give was never build a startup in one country. Always try to build your business model around three countries. Hmm. Maybe because it's, I come from a French, American, <laughs> Russian background, I like my triangle. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe, but uh, I really like to compare what's happening in one market to another market. And I find, you know, the entry to market and how you position your business or your service, you know, with three points, yeah. three countries, three, you know, services, three very interesting. So compare always. And then um, the last one is, you know, if you do it, do it fully, be full in. And uh, you need, to, like in in space, you know, like you're building up a racket, put the energy, the money for takeoff. Because if you don't, you won't take off. You know, it's as simple as that. So I don't believe now in startups which are underfinanced. I don't believe in startup. I don't believe in, you know, startup which have too much money too. You know, those unicorns who are billion dollars valuation and burn money left and right. I don't believe in that at all. And which will never be profitable. Yeah. It's not me. But at the same time, um, I think you you need to put the energy and the time and and the money into what you built. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 interesting. Um, I'd, I'd like to maybe go in a bit in a d different direction. And what strikes me as as um, listening to, um, to to the stories and it, it, it is the, the the very powerful interface that you've had with the world of um, politics and international affairs. Mm -hmm. Um, that you, your businesses have been shaped by it, but in a way, your business has also shaped uh, um, the reality, the political realities in the places that you were at. And um, I, I'd love maybe to get a bit of a perspective from you on that kind of changing macro environment from the 90s in Eastern Europe um, with kind of almost maximum exchanges east and west so to speak and with all the good and the bad that came out with it mm. and now we're talking in um, autumn 2022 mm. in the midst of the strictest sanctions ever imposed on, on a on a major economy and um with no no sign that um that model would be any any better than the previous iteration. So I'm I'm keen to get your because you, you've got this kind of patchwork mosaic kaleidoscopic mm, type mm. type of, of view. I'd really love to um, to hear your 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 reflections now on on um, yeah that that sanction model, the role of business, yeah. and and when you think it's it's going. Well, I think you know. Let's start with the role of business. The fact that I moved from you know a business school HEC in Paris to Fletcher, an international affairs diplomatical school of law and diplomacy, is very important for me because I think you know um, I really believe that you know business entrepreneurship can bring a lot to the world. And if you look at the last 20 years. You know, the big companies which have been created, uh, whether it's Apple, you know, the GAFAs, the Google, Apple, uh, Facebook, Amazon, or whether it's the unicorns. There are now uh, more than 1,000 unicorns, 55% of them created in U.S., 35% in Europe, 15% in Asia. Well, business, creating a business, creating exchange between countries, and now even more between cities. Uber was created around 10 cities. Um, 
is absolutely fundamental to keep peace in the world. And when I see, uh, you know, a time where we are now, where we put sanctions, where we stop communication with the region, I'm really frightened because I think it is the ground, and um, I'm not the only one to say that, you know, our dean at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, Admiral uh, James Tavridis, in his uh, novel about the next world war, speaks about that also from a military standpoint is, you know, you need to continue dialogue, business with between people. <laughs> and when you put sanctions like we are putting on Russia, to be fair, they are not working or they might be working in three, six months, but this year they didn't work. They, Russia made more money, you know, selling oil and gas to other countries than Europe, uh, fueling the world, this crazy world in Ukraine. Um, I think sanction is is very dangerous because, you know, all the people who are going to do business in Russia, you know, are not in Russia right now. All the normal people who are in Russia have, flee, have left Russia. Uh, so, you know, Russia is in the hands of crazy people. And uh, it's as simple as that. And, and I think putting a region like that, you know, uh, under... Uh, a curtain, you know, back to, uh, you know, east and west, like we've done with Berlin, is like the Cold War is totally wrong. I think, you know, it's, it will cost a lot of money. It will cost a lot of lives, which are at the moment, uh, you know, this war is costing huge um, losses in Ukraine, in Russia. This is absolutely wrong. Yeah. There's a quite a strong counter view there, which is that really, I mean, big decisions around the stability of, of uh, and security of Europe or the decisions that Russia took uh, in the Ukraine is the result of an individual leader or or a, a state in its in in its uh, kind of current configuration and that the business community is is almost a taker of 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 of, a, of an established order and especially in my industry in energy uh, mm -hmm. we were operating in 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 in, uh, in, in Russia and and um, uh, through the 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 the, uh, the fiscal uh, rent and all of that that was uh, generated the argument was that it was directly feeding and empowering mm -hmm. um, this this machinery and so that uh, the, the the role of business it, almost amplifies a certain structure of the order rather than helps kind of re reduce the risk. This, this was also the argument about, about China, that, that trade would lead to aspirations around freedom and yeah. all of that. And so I think within our, our Fletcher community, there's been quite a big debate from, um, and, and, and quite, quite a lot, lot of fr friends who, who have, or had or still have this belief in mm. the power of business in bringing people together mm. are finding it a lot harder to, 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 to keep that belief alive, if you like. Yeah. Well, um, I think, you know, as an entrepreneur creating small businesses, it's easy to have this uh, vision yeah. because, you know, whatever I do, it is with diversity, multiple countries. It is about trying to put uh, things together in different regions. When you're a multinational, whether it's Shell or Total or Gazprom or Lukoil or whatever, or Airbus or, you know, you're a multinational, I think it's a very, it's a much bigger question. The reality is, I think, um, I believe in diplomacy and I believe in trade. Yeah. And I think uh, when we give a world to military and crazy people in governments, it doesn't work. Yeah. So I'm very worried at the moment that the diplomats are losing 
their voice, uh, their, their qualities. I don't know where they are now. Um, and I'm really worried that, you know, people in government don't understand that, um, you know, business and trade and, uh, is, is a way to keep peace. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the European Union was built on this dream, but, uh, you know, we didn't have war for 70 years in Europe. Yeah. Now we have a war at the door of Europe and, uh, this is bad news. And this is, um, and I'm not sure putting a, you know, a, a wall between Russia and Ukraine or us and Russia will help the future of Europe and the future of the world. And because th there's two themes that keep coming in our conversations. One is this theme around there's something broken about wealth accruing to the 1% and the danger of revolution. You draw that through your read of, of history, especially. Mm -hmm. that That's one thing. And then the other is that through the um, militarization of foreign policy, conflict, the sanctions and all of that, and the severing of, 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 of business ties, we are increasing the risk of, 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 of uh, significant conflict. Yeah. And, I, I'm, like, and, and this is a bit of a kind of negative kind of turn in our conversation, mm -hmm. but, so, but I'm, I'm wondering if, 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 we, if we wanted to strike a hopeful tone What what would be, what what do you think could, like, among the entrepreneurs among us, among business people among us, among some of the talented diplomats we have in Fletcher as well, what what would be your 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 message in terms of, um, where can we focus our efforts to fix things a bit? <laughs> Yeah, how do we fix this world, which is not uh, working well at it's the moment? It's a huge, huge question, it's but a, I'm yeah, tapping on your yeah, intuition yeah. and your... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think it would be uh, trying to fix, you know, huh, it's bottom up and top down. You know, that's the, my first reaction as an entrepreneur is trying to build up small things which work at the bottom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, trying to get big things right at the top, which is, you know, for example... You know, ecology, the, the, this green challenge we have in front of us, this collapse of the of uh, of the earth. If we don't do something in the next 10, 20 years, we'll be yeah, too late. Yeah, yeah. So we need to fix that. Yeah. So how we do this? We put we need to put all our money, all our brains on those huge subjects, yeah, yeah. and not doing the war on Russia and Ukraine, basically. Yeah. Uh, well, so but at the same time, um, we need to defend democracy. We need to defend, uh, you know, the Western world, some principles we have here and which, which 300 years of democracy brought to America, France, England, those three uh, oldest democracies need to fight for what they believe yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. And I think democracy is very strong. And uh, we're saying that, you know, the week of the death of uh, Elizabeth II, which is the future of monarchy, but, you know, I like this idea of stability. I like this idea that we need to really uh, be careful into what we are building yeah. for our children. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Um, clearly, uh, post-communist worlds are not good world. I don't see, uh, you know, good societies there. I don't see uh, the right things, the right freedom, the right um, balance, uh, the right diversity. And, you know, I'm also very worried about what's going to happen in India and China. Yeah, and in my case, I mean, I think I, 
at this point, I, and I think I feel I don't want to be too abstract in our conversation. So I think I, I need to share a bit what, what I'm doing in my tiny scale. She's I'm just uh, joining a new, a new team in my company that is uh, doing uh, carbon capture in Southeast Asia. Uh, and I, I, I didn't didn't know much about carbon capture and shit recently, but only realized that this is one of the few ways that we can speed up a bit um, the the, um, the reduction in in, in uh, CO2 emissions uh, in a way that gives us a chance to meet um, the one and a half degree uh, the Paris commitment. So let, let, let's I'll, I'll put my energies to to that. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing, a little bit naive, is I embark on a on a on a double degree program with a Chinese university mm -hmm. that gives me a mm -hmm. uh, it's a business program, but it gives me a really unique window into understanding some of the preoccupations and challenges of the business community in China in the midst of um, the upcoming party congress next month and, and uh, really massive regulatory push against tech and various other sectors that uh, my, my, my friends are active in. So that's my, my yeah. little bit. <laughs> well, I really like it, Philippe. I will be most pretty 30. I will do this move. I will work on China and I will work on, uh, you know, sustainable uh, economy and sustainable energy and uh, green finance. Yeah. I'm 52, so I'm trying to find an impact where I can do an impact here in Europe. But uh, yeah, I think this is definitely an area where we need uh, brands and people like you. <laughs> <laughs> and I've really enjoyed our conversation, uh, Alexi, and I'd, I'd like to, uh, to uh, ask you a, a few questions that we ask uh, all our guests on, on, the, on this podcast. And the, the, as, as I'm asking you this, this, this question, um, uh, we're sitting together here and, and there's like stacks of, of books uh, that, you, that you've brought and you're clearly somebody who's very well read. What, one question I, I would like to ask you is, is a about, if possible, one, but probably it'll be many, <laughs> a re recent read that has changed how you see the, the world. So recent real clearly, uh, this book from uh, Ray Dalio, Why Nations Succeed and Fail, The Changing World Order. So somebody who has been spending 20, 30 years uh, analyzing the world as an investor, as a, an asset manager, and trying to understand a bit like Paul Kennedy or Ferguson, the rise and fall of great powers, but even more what's happening economically. I think this read is fantastic. And, and um, I echo your choice. I'm a huge fan of, of Ray Dalio mm -hmm. and, and just even uh, watching what he publishes on, on LinkedIn regularly about his really brilliant analysis of the, the macro picture. I think is really, and it, drawing on history as well is, is a must, uh, yeah. So that would be my read. Thanks. Then um, another question would be, if you could share a hack or a habit that has improved your life. Yeah, so the new one I have, and this is really giving me a fantastic balance, is, you know, 10,000 steps a day. Walk, walk, walk. Um, you know, I used to do a lot of sports, climbing, skiing, uh, tennis, golf, whatever. I think... You know, what is very important in my life now is two hours of walking per day. You know, this walk in the morning, 5K, 10K steps in the evening, just to, without a phone, just to reflect on putting one step after another one. And, uh, you know, psychology and a lot of people are working on those subjects. It's a good way to coach now. It's not, you know, being laying on a, in front of a doctor, but it's walking and speaking when, while you walk. So pretty believe in walking and, and you you do that uh, without distraction like yeah every yeah, day yeah, like a routine yeah. in the morning in the evening yeah. i walk and i try to walk as much as i can yeah 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's green. <laughs> it's no car. It's no uh, motorbikes. It's like cycling. It's very good. Yeah. And then one question you think I should ask the next guest on this podcast? Yeah. So my big question at the moment, actually, there are two, is uh, the question of the book of 2034 of Admiral Stavridis, you know, what is the next big war we're going to have and this obsession of what could be the next world war. And I'm a bit obsessed about this because I'm worried about it. And the second subject is what's going to happen with the 1%. You're worried about it because you feel it. It's coming. It's, com yeah, it's, it's coming. Yeah, it's coming big time. So I don't know if it's 2034 or it's 2030 or it's 2028. Yeah. But if we continue like this with the Russians, with the Chinese, with the... And you have in mind a location already or is it general? Or uh, yeah, I think, uh, you know, lots of people are working on this. But I see a world with uh, two parts, basically. One world, which is the Western world, the democracies, the... And the other side, which is the, you know, the rock states, yeah. you know, where Russia, maybe China, some countries of Africa, Venezuela could be. So a world where it's a bipolar world fighting each other in different points, but that's a disaster. Yeah. 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 Uh, you know, uh, we're back to Cold World, uh, yeah. the Cold War model, which doesn't work, but now we have this nuclear problem. So, you know, we have space, yeah. which is also, so I don't see it working at all. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so the the question would be... Yeah, how would you solve, you know, the current crisis with Russia and China? Yeah. Yeah. I think this is the biggest question we have right now. Yeah. And the other one, it would be, how do you solve, you know, this problem we have of the 1% of the planet having pretty much 90% of the resources? Yeah. Questions. Yeah, you wanted the yes. <laughs> good luck for the next one. Yes. <laughs> the next speaker. So I've, I've really, really enjoyed our conversation, Alex. Is, is there any, anything you want, any, anything else you wanted to, to say or to share um, with with our listeners as we uh, as we conclude this this amazing conversation? No, I really like this model of podcast. You know, discussing with Fletcher Alam. Um, you know, what is in their head, what they've done. I think this is very powerful for students. This is very powerful for alumni. This is very powerful for the school. So well done to do this. Yeah. And I think that's your number 35 or... I think it's uh, about 35, yeah. Yeah, today. yeah so yeah. well done because that's fantastic. And Great. I really enjoyed it uh, doing it today with you, Philip. Thank you very much, Alexi. And uh, yeah, this, uh, this concludes this first face-to-face uh, -face, um, uh, episodes. I'm, I'm really glad that we pulled it off. And th thanks again. Thanks again, Alexi. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. Please follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to be the first to know when new episodes come out.